0: Well, the Romans ruled the world for quite a time, and they always had weird names. I don't know if you've noticed that if you've studied history, but there's one governor with the name Pliny. It's P-L-I-N-Y. Um, and Pliny ruled uh, in about 110 A.D., about 60 years after the book of Colossians was written. Um, and he ruled in Bithynia, which is modern-day northern Italy. Uh, and we know actually more about him than a lot of the governors at the time because he was a writer. Uh, Pliny's one of those guys that just journaled everything he did Um, His preferred method of communication was just writing letters and and somehow historians have been able to keep those letters and so uh, we know more about him than a lot of people in that time and one of the things that just piqued his interest, one of the things that made Pliny so curious uh, was the persecution of Christians. Uh, And and he wanted to know more about them. So he wrote a series of letters to the Roman emperor at that time who was Trajan. And he wanted to know more about Christians and and why they're being killed. Because he admits in the letters it looks like they're just being killed for no other reason than they're Christians. And he doesn't understand it. Uh, And so in one letter he writes to Trajan, he says that in order to understand this group more, uh, he's actually sent spies into the local church there in Bithynia. He's hired spies to go in, act like they're checking things out. He even ordered them to be baptized so they could keep coming back freely welcomed and just be a part of the church there so they could keep reporting back to him what they're doing in there. And so he details in the letter everything that he's learned about these Christians at Trajan. He said uh, they, they, they meet at all times of day, sometimes morning, sometimes evening, all these things. But whenever they meet, they, they gather and they sing songs and hymns. And in doing so, they sing songs that recognize this Jesus fellow as Lord of the universe. Right? And it says, they, then they always pour over their sacred writings. And somebody teaches them from them. And then they would partake of a very simple meal of, of bread and drink. And in addition to that, all he really had to tell Trajan was that they taught each other to be subject to the government and to pray for all men everywhere. And so the basic thrust of his letter to Trajan was why in the world is this group a threat? Like, why do we need to be scared of these people? Right. But it got me thinking about the idea that the world is constantly watching. I see, the, the New Testament lifts up a couple of different ideas for us. The first is this, that your faith needs to be an intensely personal one. Right, the Bible says if you don't have a personal relationship, a personal faith with Jesus, you don't have faith in Jesus at all. all right, we're called to know him, not know about him, but to actually know him intimately. But do not think for a second that you're called to a private faith. Because the New Testament simply doesn't allow it, and neither does the world. The moment that you embrace the name of Christ, the moment that you brand yourself with Jesus, then if nothing else but curiosity, people will watch, they will notice, they will observe. And I began to think about this hypothetical. What if somebody sent spies here to First Baptist North? You know, there are places in this world that still do this. Are there churches meeting in Cuba this morning that every single week when they gather, there are government spies in their midst. What if somebody was here just for the sole purpose, no other reason than just figuring out what this place is all about? It doesn't have to be uh, a spy. It could just be a well-meaning person who's, who's curious. and on a spiritual journey. And part of their journey, they just want to see what a church is, just how it operates, if it's actually any different than anything else out there. And so if they came in unannounced, what would they see? What would they observe? What would they hear? What would they feel? What would they be called to? Well, today in Colossians, Paul's going to tell us what the answers to those questions should be. And though as we go through this list, you're going you're to see calls in your life that will be difficult. There's an element of relief to them, especially coming off of last week. And if you're here last week, you know that was heavy. Right? In Colossians 3, Paul gives us an image of what a life of following Christ looks like. First, we have to accept Jesus as Lord. And we ask him to forgive our sins by his death and resurrection and to take over our lives. And once that relationship is in place, then we're started on a journey that Paul describes for us with this image, this object lesson of clothes. It says the first process of this is that you, you take off the old man. These remaining parts of you that are controlled by the sinful nature, we're to put those to death, we're to shed them, Paul says, we're to take them off. And going through that passage last week, Paul came hard after sexual sins and greed. Then he came after our, our inner desires, he came after our anger, he came after the words that come out of our mouth. And he said, you, you take those off, they have no part with you anymore. We use the image that Jesus has a shovel and he wants to dig that junk out of your life. So we got to let him dig. No, it's always hard, isn't it, to confront our sin so directly and to name it. The hope in that passage is this. You can take it off. In Jesus, you can shed those things. You can shed those habits and those sins and those attitudes. Even though you're never going to be perfect this side of heaven, there is victory and freedom found in Jesus Christ. You can experience growth. You can have a list of things that you used to struggle with and don't struggle with anymore. And Jesus is the only one who makes that possible, by the way. well Today, Paul's going to move the focus off of what we're to take off to, and move it on to what we're to put on. So simply put, last week was just the bad list. All right, it's the stuff that we should pray to Jesus to remove from our lives. It's the stuff that we should resist and flee from. It's the stuff that we should never be okay with. Well, this week's it's the better list. It's the good list, right? These are the things that we should aspire to. These are the things that we should pursue and honor and protect. These are the things that we should be known for. Okay, so let's pick it up right where we left off, starting in verse 12 of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, 12 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. He starts out this section, right? Pointing out who you are and who these believers in Colossae are. And this is strong for a couple reasons. He He tells these believers in Colossae that they are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now this would land with much more impact on them than it does us. Because the majority of this church at Colossae was Gentiles. And you must understand, the first century Gentiles, for all of their lives until just recent years, the Jews were the chosen people of God. It was through the Jews that, that God gave us his law. It was through the Jews that God sent his prophets. It was, through, it was the Jews who were to be set apart and holy. It was the Jews who were described like these believers are in Colossians 3. It was through the Jews that God gave the world Jesus. Towards the very end of his earthly ministry, we find Jesus in the Gospels, standing outside of Jerusalem, looking at it and saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed, how I longed to just take you in and cover you like a mother hen protects her chicks, but you would not have it. You wouldn't have it. John 1, John tells us that Jesus came to his own, the people of Israel, but his own rejected him. And so on the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of the world, the Bible says. And when he died, there was this veil right in the center part of the Jewish temple in the Holy of Holies that contained the presence of God. There was a veil that blocked that from everyone. And when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in tune because it was torn because God's presence is now made available to everyone through Jesus. This is why Paul said, if you look at one verse from what we read in verse 11 that we closed with last week, Paul writes, there is no Gentile or Jew. That's huge, Okay. That makes sense to us. And that day, they would have all gassed. There is no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Paul's telling these believers God's chosen people are now the people of Jesus, God's chosen people are the church they are now holy and dearly loved and it doesn't matter what their background is it doesn't matter what their race is it doesn't matter what their nationality is it doesn't matter how hard a life they've had or how many sins they've committed because Jesus covered it all on the cross Jesus redeems all, he restores all his death is sufficient to forgive the sins of anyone who believes in him and Paul starts this way by by identifying these believers to remind them of two things number one, God did this, not you you weren't a chosen people You weren't holy, you were sinners. And God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. Now, now because of that, you're holy in his sight. Now as a part of the church, you are part of his chosen and set apart people. God did that. God made the way for you. God saved you. You didn't do any of that. You didn't accomplish this. And two, he says to, to be in the church, this is what the impact of this is. To be in the church is what you're called to be. Remember, he's writing to a church. He's going to give us six virtues that followers of Christ are to put on. But as he writes that, because he's writing to a church, Paul is envisioning this playing out in the context of a local body of believers. He's writing to a group of people, not one person. So as we read this list today, as we try to apply it, we need to apply it as First Baptist North, not just as individuals. Because for Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, the idea that you could try to follow Jesus apart from the local church, was unfathomable. In fact, they barely address it directly because it's just assumed through all of their writings. They couldn't even picture a scenario in which someone would try to follow Jesus apart from the church. And so this modern idea that I've heard many times with the motto basically being, I love Jesus, but I just don't need the church. I mean, that, that sounds Okay. It's got the veneer of spirituality, right? Because you're claiming to love Jesus But if you said that to Paul you said it to Peter or James or John Any of the writers in the New Testament They would look at you and be like What are you, insane? In fact, Paul repeatedly calls Jesus The head and the church the body You cannot separate the head from the body So for whatever his reasons God has set it up where Jesus is our great need And the church is where we best access him So to grow in Christ, to walk close with him, to experience the fullness of life that he has for us, I need the church, you need the church. It's just how God has set it up. And so in this list that Paul gives us of the virtues that we're to put on, yes, individually we are called to put these on. But as we do, they're very much to play out here in the context of local church. And in verse 12, we're given five of them. He says we must clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Just just looking at that list, you can see how these are designed to play out in the local church because these virtues aren't needed in isolation. You need these when you're around people. You need these in a group setting. And the first is compassion. the, The Greek word used here talks about something in your bowels. This means to feel something deep in your core. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 12 when he writes that when one part of the body or one part of the church suffers, all parts suffer with it. They enter into that suffering with them. And listen, I know as I address this room today, some of you this comes kind of easy to. But you've, you've just always been able to empathize and sympathize with others. It's just, it's just come easy to you to, to be able to put yourself in their shoes and feel what they feel. And listen, if that's you, that's a gift from God. Thank him for making you that way. It's, it's an awesome thing to have. But for some of us, this doesn't come as easy. Some of you sit sitting out there and you're like, Britt, I, I, it's not easy for, for me to put myself into someone else's story. Right? If, you, if this is you, you, you can't remember the last time you cried at a movie, if ever. In fact, you, the first time you heard about it, you're probably shocked to hear that people actually do cry at movies. It might even freak you out a little bit, right? Because that's not their story, right? And, then, and the, listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. We're born with strengths and weaknesses We're given spiritual gifts We're born with unique personalities There'll be some things on this list in Colossians 2 That we're going to go down today There'll be some things that come really easy to you And there'll be some you read and like That's just foreign to me I don't even know how to do that But the hope is this Jesus is greater than all of them So as we make our way through this If we come to something that's always been easy for you Man, thank God for that If if you're somebody who compassion's just been easy for you, then that's awesome. That's a gift from him. Be thankful and ask him to, to help you stoke that by giving you opportunities to express that compassion. And if you're more emotionally stunted, talking to the men here, okay? If you're more emotionally stunted and you have a really hard time expressing how you feel about something, much less being able to feel what somebody else feels, then take that to him. Ask him to help you put this on. Say to him, God, I know you want me to have this virtue because it's in your word. So you give it to me. Will you clothe me with it? Because this isn't, this isn't me naturally. Compassion is when you feel the hurt. You feel the struggle. You feel the pain of others. And so you enter in that realm with them. And kindness, the next one on the list is just responding to it. There's a couple levels of kindness here, right? The first is just the basic elementary level. We all know this one. It's, it's, we tell little kids when they go to school, just Be kind. Don't be mean. Don't be a grouch. Don't be a jerk. Just be kind, right? Just say kind things. Carry yourself with a kind demeanor. This is a basic level idea. The deeper level is this. If compassion is the feeling, then kindness is the action. Kindness is putting hands and feet to compassion. Because as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's simply not enough to just feel what someone else is feeling. Now You've been called to enter into the fray. And offer the peace and love of Jesus. So we bandage wombs. We feed the hungry. We sit and we mourn with the grievers. We pray for the sick. We, we clean up after the storms. We express the love of Jesus in action. And we do this in the church for each other. And we do this as the church for the world who so desperately needs what we have. Which brings us to humility. Paul says we're to put on Humility. Now, humility is championed throughout the New Testament as something that God looks for in all of us. In fact, it's it's, it's raised to this level. James says, the book of James says that God actually opposes the proud. Because if you're a prideful person, God stands against you. He actually fights against you. But then James says he gives grace and favor to the humble. If you hear, just probably four or five weeks ago, when we made our way through chapter 2, Paul warned his readers in Colossians 2 against false humility. This uh, a veneer of humility that wasn't really humility at all. all right, and in response to the calls in the New Testament, followers of Christ can misapply this call to humility. Where in, in trying to be humble, what they do is they begin to lessen who they are. They begin to downplay what God has called them to do. They begin to, to lessen the roles that he's given them to lead out in or the missions he's called them to serve. All in the name of humility. Listen, you've got to understand, humility doesn't mean beat yourself up. It doesn't mean that you see yourself as, as, you can't see yourself as having value in the eyes of God. You were made in the image of your creator in his eyes that gives you immense value. Humility doesn't mean that you won't be called to do great and awesome things. It means that as you do them, you do them for his glory and not your own. C.S. Lewis put it best when he said, Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. Just think about yourself less often. As you, as you go through your days, as you go through your life, your mindset is always on two things. Number one, how do I make a really big deal out of Jesus in this day? And number two, how can I serve others today? And listen, we all like nod to that. Yeah, that sounds good. But this is how intense this is. When we gather as a church, Paul's saying, none of us should be thinking about ourselves. So when I walk in, I'm not thinking about what I want to have happen or I'm not thinking about what I wish would occur this morning. My mind isn't going to whether I like the temperature of the room or the songs we're singing or the time the service takes or anything. That's what Paul is saying. Instead, my mind is to constantly be on God, on pleasing him and on everyone else here. How can I love others today? How can I serve someone else today? How can I enter into their fray? How can I make those guests more comfortable? I've never introduced myself to that family. I need to go do that. Focus goes from out to, it goes from in to out. That's humility. And here's the thing: it seems harder to start, but there's a secret to it. If you live like this, if you actually live like this, guess what? You don't have bad days. You have a lot less of them, because you know what happens? Bad days come when we don't get what we want. Bad, frustrating days come when our own expectations aren't met, met, when we feel slighted. But if our focus is always on others, we we just have more good days because we're not focused on ourselves. We don't have time to be frustrated or injured because we're not even thinking about ourselves. And as Paul says, as followers of Christ, as the church, we need to put this on. We need to be marked by this. We need to be defined by it. We need to wear it for all to see. And then he goes from humility to gentleness. Now, this doesn't mean you're a pushover. It simply means this, just take the edge off. Just take the chip off your shoulder. Nobody needs it. There there are a few things that we need to remember about each other. Number one, none of us are perfect. Every single one of us are are unfinished products. So we shouldn't be shocked when we act imperfectly. We shouldn't be harsh and dismissive and write others up or write others off. Number two, we don't really know what's going on in someone's heart and life. If the Bible's right and it is, and it says that God is going to judge us not for what we do but why we do it, we'd be wise to remember that about each other. So in the church of Jesus, marked by gentleness, we give each other the benefit of the doubt. When you hear half a story, don't you dare fill in the rest of the details assuming the worst in someone. That's evil and wicked. It's not gentle. When you see an action, don't assume you know the heart behind it. If there's a genuine level of concern you have for them, you maybe think that they're they're heading the wrong way, then go to them in grace and with questions. Don't go to them with accusations and harshness. And listen, this applies to the church. But if you clothe yourself with this, it should define you. Something you need to realize: you don't know everything about your coworker. You don't know everything about your boss. You don't know everything about your neighbor. You don't even know everything about your spouse. So take the time to ask questions of something as bothering you or concern you, but, but do it in the name of gentleness. Stop assuming the worst in other people. Give them the benefit of the doubt. You just might learn something along the way. And one of the things you might learn is patience. Patience is the fifth virtue listed in verse 12. And it can be one of the hardest because we live increasingly in an on-demand world. Just this week, I ordered a new uh, Bible study software program, and I'm pretty excited about it, because this is a really extensive, intense program. Um, And I was on the phone with the rep who had sold it to me, was telling me when I started the download, now don't call me back in a couple minutes if it's not downloaded, because this will take a few minutes. And I was like, I'm sorry, no offense, but this is an 800 kilobyte program, of course it's going to take a few minutes to download And she's like, you'd be surprised. I get calls back in 90 seconds to two minutes, people demanding, wanting to know why their program isn't opening. And I was like, man, this is a Bible study program, right? And we can't wait five minutes for it? Okay. Because we we just don't like being patient, right? It's not just with software programs and, and grocery lines and fast food lanes. Let me ask you a question. The car in front of you is always driving too slow, isn't it? And that car behind you is always driving too fast, isn't it? somehow you've discovered the optimal driving speed on every highway in America. Can I just say, thank God for you. We salute you, all right? You are amazing. See, this plays out in how we deal with people. Because of our sinful nature, we always want people to be patient with us. We just never want to be patient with them. And we want God to answer our prayers, and it would be a lot better if he'd do it yesterday. We want people to mature and grow a lot faster than they do. We want them to just get over things. Just get over it, man, a lot faster than they do. And as a follower of Jesus and a part of his church, we are being called here to remember that we're all unfinished products. And thank God that he was patient with us. He could have wiped us off the face of the earth and been fully right to do so. But he kept wooing and he kept drawing and he kept revealing himself to us, waiting patiently for us to surrender to him. And now he's working and now he's forming and now he's shaping us to be like him. And in that process, he's always more patient than we are. He takes his sweet time doing it. You could read all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read them. Read every verse. You will never one time find Jesus in a hurry. God was never in a hurry. Because he was never impatient. Man, I'm in a hurry all the time. I want, I want things faster than they come all the time. So I need, I need Jesus to clothe me with patience. And in verse 13, the call gets even higher. Paul writes in verse 13 to, that we are to bear with each other and forgive one another. That's not hard enough. Here's the standard we are to forgive as God forgave us. Right, so, in this community of broken people who Jesus is making whole, known as the church, in this world full of sinful people, guess what? You're going to get hurt. It's good that you know that right now. Are you come here? We're gonna let you down. I'm gonna let you down. If it hasn't happened yet, just wait. Somehow, some way, you will be hurt or offended in your church experience because somehow, some way, a sinful person acted sinful. Shock. And Paul doesn't want to dismiss your hurt. He doesn't want to downplay the fact that you were hurt. He doesn't want to act like it never happened. But at the end, this is the argument he's making. At At the end of it all, it's really irrelevant. And it's irrelevant because of what God did for you in Jesus Christ. Because no one has ever been as bad to you as you've been to God. No one has ever done more for you than God has, and yet you've repeatedly rebelled against him, rejected his authority, hurt him, sinned against him. And in response to all of your rebellion and your rejection and your sin and your harm, he took all of that on himself and suffered and died on the cross to forgive you. And that is the standard, Paul says. That's the standard that you use to forgive others. Let's just own it. We don't like this, do we? We love to be forgiven, and who doesn't love to be forgiven? But when we're hurt, all of a sudden, when we're the offended party, suddenly we become the biggest fans of justice and vengeance ever. And Paul says, No. The grace that was shown to you, now you show to others. Because the cross of Jesus Christ simply takes away your right to be a victim. And as hard as that is, it all becomes easier if we allow Jesus to get us to the point of verse 14 we're told in verse 14 that on top of everything, covering over it all, we put on love. First Peter 4 says that love covers a multitude of sins. John 13, Jesus said that his followers, that the, that the thing that we should be known by, our reputation should be that we are known for how we love one another. Now other than myself, I don't know anyone in my life who harms me more than my, my wife and my children. Simply because of Math. They just have more opportunities to do so than anybody else. And, and, and I'm going to be honest with you today, it's really easy to forgive them. It's really easy. And it's because I love them. It's really easy to forgive them because I have seen them forgive me over and over and over again when I hurt them and let them down. This is why Paul says that above it all, we need to put on love. Because if you love someone, it's not hard to be compassionate you love someone, it's it's not hard to be kind or gentle or patient or forgiving towards them. It's not hard to think of what's best for them and not think about yourself. Not if you love them, it comes natural. So do you ask God to help you love people in your life like that? Do you ask God to, to help you love the people in this place like that? Even if they go to a different service than you. Even if they're in a different phase of life than you. Even if they see things differently than you do. Even if they have different sins and struggles than you. Or do you just act like you don't need them for, for them to be a part of your experience here? This is what we're called to. And he closes out this section with this. He starts in verse 15. Colossians 3 verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude of your hearts. So number one, he says, we're we're here to let peace rule us. This is hard to apply, but a really simple idea because peace comes from one source. Peace comes simply when we're committed to Jesus as our authority when we are sure to keep Jesus as our authority when we that we take our lead from him that he has complete say and reign in our lives we're going to experience peace because he is the prince of peace the second thing paul says we are to do is we are to let the message of Jesus dwell richly among us now that word message could also be translated word this is the word of Jesus the message of Jesus we know what this is this is the gospel It's this good news that that tells us that we are sinners and we can never get to heaven by anything that we do. We're doomed. We're condemned already, John 3 says. But in response to that, God sent Jesus who came and lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't. And then Jesus died in our place on the cross to pay the penalty that we owe God. And three days later, he gloriously defeated death by rising again. And now all who turn to him, all who trust in him with their lives and ask him to forgive them will be forgiven of their sins and granted eternal life in heaven with him. That amazing story of grace, that grand story of God's redemption and how God came to save us should dwell among this place richly, Paul says it means we should think about it all the time we should talk about it constantly we should share it it should define the way we live we should rejoice in it we should sing about it and preach about it and proclaim it it should be the center of everything we do around here there's a real easy example of this of how this plays out it's just the video series we're doing right in response to the growing number of children and young families that god is sitting in our way we're gonna we're gonna move a ramp and that's gonna start a domino effect Okay? just by changing entrances to our building, it means then we're, next we're going to give up all our office space, which means we need to find new office space somewhere. And, and then when we move those, we're going to move around some Sunday school classes. And then we're going to have to knock down some walls. We're going to have to build some new walls. So the question is, why do all this? I mean, why go through all that effort and do all that work and move all those things around? Why not just say, you know what? We're full. It is what it is. Why not just say, I mean, sure, it's crowded, but they're only back there, what, an hour and 15 minutes? Well, the reason those aren't options that we ever considered isn't just because it's a really cheap thing to say to our parents and volunteers. But the reason that's never an option is because of the gospel. Because hear me, as the church of Jesus, we are never full. We are never satisfied with the number of people that we can point to the life-changing and eternity-saving truths of Jesus. Jesus. Because it simply does not matter how many ramps we have to move, how many walls we have to knock down or put up, how many rooms we have to adjust or switch. If it grants us the opportunity to tell one more child, one more family, one more person about what Jesus can do for them, then it's all worth it because this is what we're about. This is what we're about here. And as we do this, Paul says, we are to come alongside each other and teach and admonish one another. So we link up, we, we point one another to Jesus. If, if one of us strays and starts, starts getting lost and off track, then we bring them back. We gather and we sing together to the God who made it all possible. And we do this because we are the church. We are a living, breathing organism that God is renewing and making whole. And as the church, we have been entrusted with the hope and message that the world desperately needs. So we create community, we create an environment that's ruled by Christ, that's defined by love so that people can come and experience the awesome reality of Jesus and we don't get in the way. And then yes, lastly, Paul says, we take that reality, we take that message to our world. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do, it's pretty encapsulating, by the way, kind of covers everything, right? Whatever you do, Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through this. This verse is the church unleashed. This is the church going out into the world and finding opportunities to show the world who Jesus is. Those of you who are baseball fans or baseball historians, you probably know the name Christy Mathewson. Uh, he's, he's long gone, but Christy Mathewson was one of the greatest pitchers to ever play baseball. In the year 1908, he won 37 games as a starting pitcher, which is almost unheard of. But There's one play that's been recorded for, for history, kind of been passed down as an impressive play, and he wasn't pitching, he was a base runner. He's on third base, and, and, and the manager called for a squeeze play, and so uh, his, his teammate put the bunt down. Matthewson broke for home. Uh, the opposing team's pitcher picked it up, fired home, and the ball and Matthewson arrived at pretty much the exact same time. The only issue is it was a really dry, dusty period, and it had rained in a while. And so when Matthewson slid and the catcher applied the tag, there was just this huge cloud of dust and dirt, and the umpires simply could not see what happened. So he called the other umpires over, and they all said, man, we just couldn't see anything. So finally, after talking about it for a little they did something the umpires pretty much never do. They called Mathewson over and they said, Tell us, were you safe or out? Mathewson looked at them and he said, Yeah, he got me. And so he was called out. After the game, the teammates walked up to him and I said, what, what was that? All you had to do was say you're safe and we'd have got the run. And Mathewson replied, Guys, I'm an elder in my church. I've got to be honest when I'm presented with that question. So he had to be honest because he served to power higher than competition or winning the game. I love that small example because here's the thing. He could play with all that he had. He could pursue excellence and become an all-time great, and he did all of that. Right? But he did so recognizing there was a higher purpose to his play, and that was to glorify God. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it removes the notion that to fully devote yourself to Jesus, you have to work at a church or be a missionary, and that simply isn't true at all. Because the church needs everyone. It needs lawyers, it needs teachers, it needs doctors, it needs stay-at-home moms and coaches and factory workers and laborers and delivery drivers and retail workers and waiters and waitresses. The church needs you to go and do what you do, but do it to the glory of God. Listen, go be excellent. Go succeed. Go work and strive and pursue to the best of your ability. But as you do, don't lose sight of who you're working for. And as you do, look for opportunities to make much of him. Look for chances to build his kingdom, not just yours. Look for ways to share Jesus with those that you come in contact with. Ways to serve others, invest in others. Ways to make other people look good. Try that out. So wherever God has you in life, go in the name of Jesus. Go work to the best of your ability for his glory and share his love with others. And when you do, people are going to notice. That Roman governor we talked about at the start, Pliny, he never did lose his fascination with Christians. But he was a good soldier. He followed the orders of Rome, and, and eventually in his jurisdiction, even though he claimed the whole time to never understand it, Christians began to be persecuted. He didn't know why, but he followed orders. And so in one of his letters to Trajan, the emperor, he told the emperor how he now was finding Christians because the church, once the persecution started, had started meeting and hiding. He couldn't find them anymore. So he had to come up with a new way to flush them out, a new way to expose who they are. And he said he had a method that worked every single time. And it was three steps. He'd wait till there was a big public gathering where lots of people would be there. And first, he would give the people in the gathering the opportunity to pray to the gods of Rome. Secondly, he would order that the group there, would, would, he would give them a chance to offer a sacrifice to the image of the emperor, and lastly, he would give the group a chance to, to curse the name of Christ. And he writes that he knew he would always be able to find the real followers of Jesus because real followers of Jesus would refuse to do any of those three things knowing it was going to cost them their life. And every time it flushed them out. Listen, the world's watching. And Paul is telling us here in Colossians 3, you may need, we need to put on the new man. We need to be clothed and divine, defined by these things. And when we do, in doing so, we're going to be creating the type of Christian community in the church that actually changes lives. And in doing so, we're going to be unleashed into the world with the mantle of Jesus and the mission of making him known. And so the question is what are we showing the world? What are you showing the world? How is it that you're using your career? How is it that you're using this specific season of life you find yourself in? How is it that you're using your home? How is it that you're using your skills and your talents and your family to bring glory to God and not just yourself? As you look at Colossians 3, what, what, you look at this list, what, what's still lacking? What do you still need to put on? The good news is the answer is the same as last week. Just the same way as, as you need Jesus to, to dig and remove the old because you can't yourself. You need him to add and put on the new because you can't do this yourself. So whatever it is that's lacking, whatever it is missing, call on him today to do this to help you put on the new. Because this place needs it and the world needs it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the calls in the Bible like Colossians 3 that just seem impossible, Lord. This is last week. It seemed impossible to to change our own inner sinful desires. This week it seems impossible to walk in patience and gentleness and humility everywhere we go. But God, that's the point. The point is that these calls drive us to Jesus the point is to, to push us to the one who can do this because we know we can't do this ourselves. So God, I pray first for the person in this room who's, who's trying to live this life, who's trying to navigate, who's trying to, to earn their way in heaven. And up to this point, they've tried to do it on their own. God, they've never surrendered to Jesus. They've never found the grace that is found in him. They've never, they've never submitted themselves to his death and asked him to take over their life. God, they need that more than they need the next breath. So I pray that your spirit would work on them, that that they would be convinced and they would surrender their lives to you today. And God, for the rest of us, as we look at this immense call to walk around our world, to, 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 to interact with each other in this place, just like Jesus did, to clothe ourselves with such things that are so unnatural for us, Lord, may we never look within to do this. May we never rely on ourselves, but ask you to do this in us by faith. We pray all this to the only one who can make this possible. In Jesus' name, amen.